Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now for this week's episode. Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week... Ooh, what's that rustling I hear outside? Is that a gate clanging or is it Halloween coming to town? That's right, it's our Halloween episode, so we have to watch a scary film. The scary film that we have chosen to watch is turning 40 years old. It is Stanley Kubrick's... The Shining. Sorry, The Shining. (laughs) Uh, And yes, there will probably be discussions about The Simpsons throughout this episode. Um, Joining me, as always, we have someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it's Katrina Johnston. Hi, Stephen. How are you, Kat? I'm good. Um, Just for the folks at home, just as a little reminder, Mm. who are you, Katrina, and what do you do? Uh, I'm Katrina. I'm a lighting designer that's... uh, Moonlighting as a delivery driver at the moment, because mm-hmm. um, you know, Corona. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Okay. Yeah. Good. Short. Yeah. Succinct. We know. We know the story. Yeah. Um, you have not seen The Shining. I have not. So, w- what do you know about The Shining? Um, pretty much. Obviously, although I haven't seen it, I have very much existed in the cultural context where it it also has existed. Mm-hmm. So you know, I've watched The Simpsons, I've watched, I've seen all the memes. Mm. Um, so I have a vague idea mm. um, of you know, it's a guy that goes crazy and something about a hotel, and there's a weird kid on a tricycle mm. in a hallway. Uh, I was just trying to think, I was thinking on the drive here how many things I know of that are probably direct references or at least oblique references. And I was like, well, I know there's a whole bunch of Simpsons episodes that kind of reference it. Mm. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's a Doctor Who, at least one Doctor Who episode, recent Mm. Doctor Who episode that references it. Um, When you said that, I thought of, is it a Matt Smith episode? Yeah. Yeah, The one where they're all stuck in the hotel. Yeah, with the Minotaur. Yeah. 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 I feel as though that, yeah. As soon as you said that, I went, oh yeah, that was pretty shining light. Yeah. Excellent. Well, joining us, fortunately, we have someone who has seen the film, and mm. ladies and gentlemen, he's making his debut on the Ooh. podcast. It is Mr. Brent Hill. Hello. Uh, how are you, Brent? I'm well. How are you? I'm I'm doing very well. Uh, Brent, just for the folks at home, uh, in case they don't know who you are, yeah. who are you, Brent Hill, and what do you do? <laughs> so assertive. <laughs> I um I am the manager of the Overlook Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm just moonlighting there. I'm staying in the hotel and looking after the place. Hope nothing happens. Mm. Um, you keeping busy? Yeah, keeping busy. You know, just writing a book. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Are you getting any uh, downtime though? <laughs> oh, well, you know, not. It's all work. You know, for me, it's all okay. work. All uh, work and not much play. <laughs> Excellent. But outside that, yeah, I do a bit of musical theatre. A bit. Yeah. I'm an actor who has found himself in the realm of musical theatre land, bizarrely. Mm. Yeah. But it's been great. 
and dare I say, doing very good at it. Well, thank you. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, don't don't thank me. Thank the people that gave you a Helpman Award. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Because I did not have a say in that. But um, yes, no, very talented. They told me it was all you, Stephen. Oh, did they? Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Well. Uh, Great. All right, well, I'm going to sort that out after we finish this episode. I'm going to go talk to the Helpman Committee. But before I do that, we do have to talk about The Shining. Y- yes. Um, in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way, what can people like Katrina who've not seen The Shining expect from it? Uh, yes, you can expect a lot of tension. From what I remember, there's a lot of shots that are just kind of very drawing out the tension. And mm. atmosphere is like number one in this film. And just like a lot of Jack Nicholson running around and and running around and poor Shelley Duvall Mm. um, just being scared a lot I mean I'm sure that we'll talk about it but of course there was huge controversy on the set of this film um, in terms of Shelley Duvall's um, mental state mental state and well-being yeah oh I just remember the other thing that I I'm pretty sure might be an urban legend that the kid in the film didn't know it was a horror film wow (laughs) You're you're roughly scratching yeah. around the right area, so uh, yeah, we'll we will definitely get into that after yeah. uh, watching the film. Uh, but with all that being said, shall we watch The Shining? Okay, let's do let's it. Go. Perhaps we should drink some red rum while we do it. Yeah, great idea. Yeah. Great <laughs> idea. Uh, for those of you listening at home, uh, pop in those DVDs and come play with us as we watch The Shining. Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching The Shining. And by we, I of course mean uh, Mr. Brent Hill. Hi. And Katrina Johnston. Hello. Katrina, that was your first time watching mm. The Shining. What did you think? Not as much blood as I thought there would be. Okay. Um, and again, I think I have to, I have to go back to, to my excuse of I am very... Reliant on situation to really get into a film. I knew it was good. Like the script was good. The cinematography was great. But I felt like I need to go... I need to see this in a cinema. Mm. I need to be really immersed into it. And I think sitting in your... Sitting in your lounge room, Stephen. Like going, oh, Gibson's walking by. Can I give him a pat? Mm. Um, Pulled me out of it. Or at least I wasn't able to focus as much. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I certainly think, uh, for those who are listening at home, we are recording this uh, on, a, on a sunny October afternoon. Yeah. Um, it's lovely and warm. It is lovely and warm. It's about 25 degrees. We're in a lounge room. As, as um, Katrina said, my, my little old dog Gibson came wandering in for reassuring pats every now and then. Like it's, it, it is very much an environment that is antithetical to mm. the film. I was having the same thought when mm. I was watching this. Is about maybe 20 minutes from the end. Yeah. I was sat there going, I really don't know if I'd like this more or less in a cinema because I'm not a big fan of scary films in yeah, general. Like, I, I don't mind them, but, um, and, and this film in particular, I, I'm just straight up going to say I thought it was a really great film. Mm. Yeah. And I think watching it in a cinema would certainly be an enhancing experience, mm. but I don't know if I want that experience because it's really effective. Yeah. I, I really appreciated yeah. the alienation of it. 
Yeah, I think it would be a, a, a good experience, but I don't afterwards I'd be like, I need a bottle of wine to calm down because there is just so much tension built. Mm. Um and and it's like you need you need a release. Yeah. And I don't feel like you quite get that at the end. How big a bottle of wine do you think that um, Shelley Duvall's character has at the end of this film? Oh, I'd say probably about three or four bottles. Maybe just get her a barrel. Yeah. But even Shelley Duvall herself, like having to go through that to get to those levels of anxiety Mm. during filming. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably a good place to start on this. Not, Not necessarily like talking about what happened in the film, but actually talking about, I suppose, the the mythos that exists around the production of this film. Mm. Um, it's it's one of the things that people know most commonly about it is that, oh, this is the film where they did 127 takes of a shot with... Um, and it's a really simple shot. Yeah, with Shelley Duvall in it. And, like, Kubrick was um, well-known, had a reputation for doing repeated shots and shots and things of that nature. Um, and, and some of it is, is urban legend. Uh, some, you know, some, mm. some of it is um, people saying it wasn't 127, it was only 50, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, but he was someone who, as, as a director, really pushed what his performers were doing. And I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot to be looked at with, with how Kubrick directed as to whether or not that sort of pushing is one ethical or, but two worth it. Like did, did we necessarily get better performances or the performances that were absolutely needed from that treatment? Mm. Would, would Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall have been able to perform the way they did had they had a nice time? I guess. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, cropped up which is possibly one of the things that also took me out of it um just being i'm just sitting there watching this i'm like i wonder how many men have watched this and basically used it as a playbook to abuse their partners Mm. because to me i was like if you take the supernatural out of it the element out of it this is just an abuse film yeah it is but, just about an abusive relationship mm. right from the get-go but is the film about an abusive relationship or is it as you say like a how-to guide on on gaslighting and yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think that's also one of the conversations we have when when talking about. You know, it's like when when films have suicide in them, mm. and people are very reluctant to show suicide on film because they're like, "Oh, this is potentially showing people how to kill themselves." Mm. Um, so yeah, I think uh, poss- possibly, possibly not. I mm. I'm not sure. So it, it's curious insight, isn't it? It's like, yeah. was Jack primed for this before going to the hotel? Would this have happened mm. if not going to the hotel? I would say yes, mm. judging from um, the conversation that he has. And fair enough, the he's not actually talking to a person. He's talking to a supernatural entity. But he's talking about, you know, three years ago, he hurt his son. Mm. And he's like, oh, he just, just lost it. Mm. Just lost it. Mm. Like, it was a totally an accident. Um, so I would say, yeah, he's already primed for it. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because watching this film, having seen it before, and I wonder if you mm. did the same thing just knowing what you know about the film, my feeling in that first scene is that Jack, um, when going for the interview, yeah, is already a psychopath. Like, mm. like Yeah, he, he's got the potential. He has yeah. that, that thing of, it, it just doesn't, Jack Nicholson just doesn't look like a normal human being. And it's it's like that's partly why he's 
been so he plays a villain great so in, well yeah, he, he's wonderful in this in terms of like from a performance perspective yeah i think he's fantastic yeah uh, but the thing is is he has a face which is interesting to look at and watch and is so expressive and but but so sort of tailored towards features that we consider to be either villainous or dangerous or, or, menacing, or, or yeah. psychopathic mm. and i do wonder if maybe if someone at the time you know if you oh what's this new film the shining in 1980 went down to the cinema where jack nicholson is a well-known actor Mm. but but not you know as well known as he is now in terms of like he's a big star but now he's a big star who has got 40 years of additional career on top i wonder if they would have had the same thing of watching this film going oh that just seems like a perfectly normal american man dad person yeah who then is pushed pushed and descends because of the circumstances of the hotel but because i think it, it probably is because we go into it knowing what The Shining's about, mm. that we're like, oh yeah, that Jack's a bad egg from the start. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, we even made that commentary as it was happening in terms of them, the family driving up to the hotel and mm. him talking about cannibalism, cannibalism. to his <laughs> yeah. son. You're like, uh, good parenting. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And I think it's interesting because he, he, he is set up, mm. the character of Jack, um, and it gets slightly confusing because obviously actor and character have the same name yeah. but the character of Jack mm. is very much set up as being like someone who is not not a great person certainly not a great mm. father um, but yeah I suppose it's always that that interesting question of that the hotel and the isolation do help transform him into the full monster yeah. at the end but I guess it is that question yeah. of, is the hotel just an environment that lets that come out of him or does the hotel twist him into that? Um, because I, I would say the former. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I, I certainly think there's, there's arguments for both cases, like, you know, mm. the hotel ghost of, um, of Delbert, the butler, unlocking the door mm. um, for him. Because otherwise that, that whole final act where he, he kills um, Scatman Crothers and yeah. um, goes racing through the maze wouldn't have happened because he'd have been trapped in the food storage room. Yeah, but that's just um, lacking access. Yeah. It's just... Um, where, but the intent is still yeah. there, I think. Um, it's just like the... Weird sort of analogy, but mm. it's like the gun gun control discussion, debate in the mm. States... Uh, and you know, Americans who are for guns, are pro-gun, are like, oh, well, Australians mustn't have gun deaths because, like, before we we had gun control, and because you just, yeah, you're just not, you, you're just different people. Mm. Like, we we Americans, we need our guns because that's our that's our thing. And it's like, no, we're like other countries who have gun control aren't saints or anything like that there's still plenty of domestic violence plenty of murders deaths all that kind of stuff it's just we don't have the tools people are already primed to do the bad thing Mm. just how bad they do the bad thing yeah is dependent on what they have access to Mm. um yeah i definitely think yeah the hotel's just unlocked uh potential for Mm. him and you see that, like, in the in the scene we were talking about, like, just even if you take out the whole um, talking about cannibals bit to his son, to his very young son, um, just the whole when the kid goes, when Danny goes, oh, I'm hungry. He's like, well, you should have eaten your breakfast. Yeah. That already antagonistic, you haven't listened to me, therefore 
you need to be mm. you need to be taught a lesson it would be such a different film if Jack's character was more lighter if he was mm. a brighter character in the beginning and then like we see a very obvious yeah transformation happen through the hotel and we're yeah. like well it's the hotel the hotel's the evil part yeah but perhaps that's that actually you know the film's success is that subtle confused line between is it the character yeah. or is it the hotel yeah I yeah I would totally agree with that um, yeah, it creates that that discussion, that wondering is like, oh, is there is there the evil in me, or do I have that potential, that kind of thing? Mm. Um, yeah, it's all it, it's like within within religion, they discuss whether or not um, you know evil within is within everyone, or if it's an external force, and it's very interesting which religion sort of goes which way. And even different sex within religion. Mm. But I won't discuss further on that because I don't know enough about religion. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. <laughs> I think um, it's kind of interesting, though, that we have this text that is the original, obviously, novel from 1977, yeah. um, written by Stephen King, which details these things. And then it ends up in the hand of Stanley Kubrick, who mm. reputationally... Mm. is probably someone who is quite like Jack Torrance. Yeah. In, in, I, and not like a raging, murderous psychopath, he, he's, but very controlling. He's the mm. beginning. Yeah. And like, I'm not surprised that Stanley Kubrick, a director with his sort of ethos and reputation, was decided to do mm. this kind of film. So, I mean, the, the story of the film is, is quite simple on paper. Mm. It's a family of three look after a hotel for five months and hijinks ensue. Uh, but those hijinks are based around ghosts and murder and paranormal happenings, particularly the titular shining, the ability that is present in um, Danny, the, the young boy, mm. um, played by Danny Lloyd, um, who was seven or eight at the time that they filmed this. Um, he has some form of... Um, telepathic powers he, yeah. he can communicate with other He's people a psychic. yeah he can communicate yeah. with other people with the shining like scatman crothers characters uh, dick halloran they can communicate mm. with each other without uh, speaking uh, he also has um an interesting relationship with his imaginary friend uh, Tony. Tony, yeah. yeah. It talks like this. Tony Redrum. Who is Tony? It's yeah. I mm. wish there was more info about that because I was like, oh, Tony's gonna like encourage the kid to kill his parents or something like that. Or, or like we'll see Tony at some point. Yeah, but Tony seems to be a warning, mm. at least something. Some like he seems to have Danny's interests at heart, mm. but obviously is still quite secretive. And potentially malevolent. Mm. Yeah. So Tony is is obviously in the book, and there's lots yeah. of elements of the book which were sort of removed from this filmic adaptation. Well, um, how how long is the book? The book is about four hundred and fifty pages. Yeah, it's so like that's, it's, that's that's fair. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a decent sized novel that they've yeah. trimmed down to a two hour film, or well, two hour film that we watched on Netflix. There yeah. are versions of this film which are about half an hour longer um, yeah I seem to remember it being like three hours yeah so the, yeah this was the theatrical release that we were watching uh, right. I believe um, but yes Danny refers to Tony in both the film and the book as a little boy that lives in my mouth um, mm. that gives him warnings and you know says like you know 
dad's going to get the job you're going to go to the hotel like that kind of thing like he knows things he has these premonitions before mm. they happen um and it's never explained in the film um but in the book the shining danny's imaginary friend tony is danny's future self damn communicating and warning him so that he can survive the events of the shining oh that's cool oh that is cool yeah uh, and also, the reason he's called Tony is because in the book, Danny's middle name is Anthony. Uh, yeah. Right. Mm. And I read that before watching this 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 for the today for the podcast, and mm. I love that. I like. I really wish there was a way that that was explained in the film, where you were like, "Oh, it's and like even if it was just at the very end, where it's like you know, grown up Danny being like in the future, just going, oh, I better remind myself.' <laughs> <laughs> he's just speaking to do list. Yeah, he's get the shopping." <laughs> Communicate to my seven-year-old self about my murderous father. <laughs> After the concert, we gotta go back and leave your dad's keys <laughs> next to outside the police department. Yeah. T- uh, Danny, we gotta, like, tell yourself so you don't get murdered. <laughs> Radical. <laughs> um, there is a sequel to this film that came out last year uh, ah, called Doctor Sleep. Sleep. Uh, with Ewan McGregor playing the grown-up Danny. Now, I haven't seen Doctor Sleep. But does he have a scene where he's well, communicating that, that's just it. I, I don't know. What I do know about that film is that Danny still has his shining powers. Okay. And he uses it to talk to people who are dying in, like, comas mm. to help them pass on. Mm. Is sort of, like, the premise. Um, I don't know if in that film there's a scene with Ewan McGregor going, Watch out. Your dad is going to get a new job. But, um, I, yeah, I, I, I am now actually quite interested in going to watch Doctor mm. Sleep or, yeah. or renting yeah. it. Because I think it has to be said, we've talked a lot about sort of like some of the, the, the interesting and problematic elements mm. of the film as a production. This is a very good film, though. Just, just in terms of yes. what is on the screen, what you can hit play and watch. It's... It's fantastic. Yeah. I, I really don't think there's any way around it. I know this film wasn't very well received at the time. Certainly it didn't receive any Oscar nominations. Um, it was... Oh, sad. It was uh, nominated for quite a few Razzies <laughs> um, when the Razzies were first a thing. Uh, I believe both Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall were both nominated for Worst Actor and Worst Actress. Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah, Shelley Duvall's character, Wendy, I... I find her, she, yeah, she's a bit limp. Yeah, she's incredibly um, limp. Yeah, and I think it it works because of how manic uh, Jack Nicholson's character is. Um, I think if this was made, to, I was thinking about it. I was thinking if this was made today, I could totally imagine the whole conversations that Jack Nicholson is ha- having with the waiter character hmm. could happen on the internet. In like an incel um, chat, room. chat room. Yeah. It felt like that. So like Jack could be on a QAnon or whatever yeah. that thing. And then some would be there going, yeah, I murdered my wife. It was great. <laughs> yeah. You should do it too. Yeah. Um, and, and it, and, but it kind of works that Shelley Duvall's character is limp because that does tend to happen to victims uh, or people who are still living within an abusive relationship. Yeah. And I think, as much as it's something where you're like, honey, get out of there, like that yeah. kind of thing. Mm. Like you are also looking at it and going, it it makes sense, mm. even though it's something that you know you're personally like you you really would hope that were you in a, a similar situation you yeah. would not be there. But 
the fact is is that if it's been established that the character of Jack has been somewhat problematic in the events leading up to mm. the film at least emotionally abusive yeah then it would potentially make sense in fact no it does make sense that, mm. that Wendy is the way that she is yeah um, but also that she but she's also shown as being quite capable and practical mm. outside of the emotional relationship sphere like yeah, she's when, the one when that keeps the hotel running yeah when she's mm. alone she, you can see her she's she's figured out that the phone lines yeah. are down she knows how to use a radio she knows that she's real screwed she's raising Danny yeah like they're, they're shown as being, having a good relationship even though she's you know smoking a cigarette while he's having his sandwich at the table in the first yeah, scene but oh, that's 1970s it was, yeah it was 1970s I'm not gonna I'm not gonna yeah. <laughs> go, on, go, go off on her about that but um, but she's uh, you know uh, being a as good a mother as she can be and um, she's and the interesting thing I found is Tony only spe- will speak around Wendy yeah so he knows, like, obviously, now that you say Tony is Danny's future self, yeah. like, it'd be very understandable why he's not speaking around um, Jack. But yeah. it shows that she's like, oh, it's just it's an imaginary friend. I'll just sort of, you know, just not make a fuss about mm. it and he'll be fine. He'll grow out of it. Yeah. And also all of her motivations to take action are mm. to protect Danny. Yeah. Not necessarily to protect herself, which I think is a really interesting reflection of the way that a lot of these domestic abuse situations yeah. happen, where it's not self-preservation, it's preservation of the children or the mm. child that, that motivates action in a lot of these cases. Like she... It's because it's easier yeah. It's easier to understand the value of another person because they're outside of you yeah. uh, than to acknowledge that you have worth because if you knew that you had worth you wouldn't be in the relationship yeah you wouldn't be in the relationship and like we see that when danny went into room 237 and comes back with his lovely apollo jumper all scuffed up and he's got the the bruise marks on his neck and she thinks that jack did it and she goes straight into like a combative yeah like go away get away like you're no good like that kind Mm. of thing and like she takes danny away from him and then when Danny says, no, no, it was this woman in mm. the bathtub, she goes back to him because all that pretense, yeah, I, I guess gone. all that, that idea falls away and she goes back to the old habit until Jack finally does flip. Yeah. It does make sense that she would think that it was him considering that it's only the three of them yeah. in the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. It's this funny thing where if we need Wendy to be a bit limp, I think dramaturgically, because then if she was completely capable, it wouldn't be such a suspenseful... Yeah. yeah horror film mm. so the fact that she's a bit like you know she has all there's so many shots of her freaking out like just mm. living in, in anxiety mm. which we need we need from from her aspect yeah, yeah. Mm. as a victim who then turns into a rescuer yeah 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 i think that's a really it, it's a very quick transition i well, guess yeah but it, i think it is important that that transition is there i think partly it's a partly a quick transition because it isn't a complete transition like Mm. she's still freaking out very much like i was expecting jack to catch up with them until they until the snow cat snow cat drove off into the distance and i was like oh good they're fine oh thank god (laughs) they disappeared the mist swirled yeah and then we had that shot of jack nicholson gurning covered in snow going (laughs) (laughs) which you laughed openly at yeah it is (laughs) very funny it's a meme Um, I think that's really interesting. This film is highly memeable, has become highly oh, yeah. memed. 
Um, and you were saying that was a large part of what you knew about the film before watching it, Katrina. Yeah, because, well, just little snips, snippets of it. And, you know, the, the evil twins. Mm. Um, as someone who is dating a twin, yeah, they're evil. Um, <laughs> okay. do, do Scott and Greg hold hands when you walk down a corridor and go, come play with us, Katrina, forever and ever and ever? No, but they do argue that, so the mythology, twins share a soul. Oh, yeah. And they're redheaded twins, so they've got no soul to begin with. They're, so they're like down to like a quarter, and um, yeah, so it's problematic. Mm. I, one, one thing I noticed about this, like revisiting and seeing the twins, they're not exact. They're not. No, they're not. One slightly twins. taller. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess they are would probably be different actresses, but it's it's uh, it's offsetting that you kind of mm. go, oh, they're twins, but actually they mm. look slightly different yeah, yeah. The, the, the the twins in real life are twin sisters uh called wow. lisa and louise burns mm. um they have a twitter account oh really yeah, <laughs> uh, which i discovered while watching this film at shining underscore twins oh that's great but yeah they're based in london england uh and they just tweet Do they things. still act no this was the only film they did oh, okay there's a lot of people in this film where this was the only film they did that mm. both of the women in the bathtub the young one and the old one who's like <laughs> This was, but but for both of them, mm. that was their only film appearance, except for other media to do with The Shining. So yeah. like when they've done retrospectives, oh, yeah. I know that the young woman in the bath has been interviewed about like, so what was it like making out with Jack Nicholson in the nude? You know that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and she was like, kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, he was looking pretty pretty feral towards the end of the film. Yeah. But um, yeah, he, uh, yeah, The Shining twins, um, uh, Lisa and Louise, uh, they do have that Twitter account. Their most recent tweet at the time of recording. Uh, is uh, six fictional homes reimagined as Polly Pockets, one of them being the Shining Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're both on there. They're both fi- uh, 52 now, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, most of the stuff that they are tweeting and retweeting is people talking about, uh, talking about Kubrick or The Shining or things like that. So mm. I've, just, I've, I've now started following them. And also fun gifts of like, animations of the, the the girls chasing danny on his trike and things like that so yeah, yeah. so they seem like a lot so, something to amuse themselves yeah. with um what was the most unsettling piece of imagery for you then katrina was it the twins sort of the juxtaposition between them standing there and then being murdered in the hall uh mm. no because like yeah obviously that was like a bit of a jump scare i can't actually think of any one particular moment mm. um yeah, I think it's more sequences because you can feel the tension rising uh, in in so many of them, in so many of the moments. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, did you have one, Brent? Yeah, look, it's I love that scene between the confrontation scene that takes place in the writing hall, hmm. where you know Jack is slowly, menacingly walking towards Wendy. Hmm. Hmm. You know, it's that point where he's finally. It, what's so beautiful about the film is that it's like it's a perfect boiling frog mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like there's any one point that's like and now we're like really taking it high it's just like this constant slow build mm. of warp yeah. you know particularly for Jack's character and so in that scene and I love about it is the fact that Kubrick puts the camera between the two characters and we're constantly going back and forth so mm. it feels like you're in between this very menacing it's like mummy and daddy are fighting yeah um and then just walking up the staircase um, yeah. backwards with the bat swinging the bat yeah and he's there going give me the bat give me the bat yeah, give me the bat wendy me the bat. Me the bat. Me the bat. wendy <laughs> darling light of my life yeah 
it's sensa- it's a sensational scene. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, like you can see like the full depth of that grand room behind mm-hmm. Jack's character as he's as it's out of focus, but it's almost like the the hotel itself is is closing in around them, right. even yeah. though it's really just a shot of what's behind them. It's it's so well put together. It's so well put together. Yeah. And the beautiful shots of all the hotel makes it feel very theatrical because mm. the space is quite large. Yeah, it's a very grand uh, setting for this quite claustrophobic horror story. Yeah. I think for me, uh, the imagery, um, I remember the old rotten woman in the bathtub thing uh, <laughs> from when I first watched it when in, my, in my teens because that was like a really good fun switch of yeah. like ooh sexy lady oh no not, now she's a corpse and she's laughing and she's going <laughs> um, but but for me I think it's the the blood elevator mm. just because it's such it is very a, distinctive such an incredible mm. shot yeah um, and just just the the colour and the texture of everything that's in that yeah. scene, not just the blood, but like the sofas which get splashed out the way and it's just remarkable. Um, so iconic for yeah. this film mm. too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just just kind of, it's just a really well made film and I think it creates that atmosphere and that tension mm. so remarkably well. I think it's yeah. very understandable, even 40 years on, um, it does. Oh, fit. it very much. The yeah. cinematography stands yeah. up to the test of time, this and I think feel... this is going to be mm. a beautiful film in another forty years. Yeah. Mm. Th- this does not feel like a film from nineteen eighty. I was thinking it would be kind of great to do a double feature of this and uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh, because you know, obviously, similar setting, but very different vibes, but still both so beautiful and really playing into the symmetry mm. of those of those hotel environments, yeah. which are kind of kind of comforting and homely, but also very public and sterile. And because of the symmetry, yeah, it's public. It's it's kind of sterile. Yeah. Would you make it a triple bill with Hotel Transylvania, which is also horror and hotels? I have, I don't know that film, so... That's the Adam Sandler uh, Dracula cartoon one. Oh, Would no, I'd rather stab my eyes out. No, I wouldn't. I, it, 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 I just remember, I was trying to think of films with hotels, and I went straight to Hotel Transylvania, which uh, is a rather fun kids' comedy film yeah. uh, with horror elements. That shot that you were talking about with the blood, mm. apparently that... They did redid that. They had to retake that shot. A they few certainly times. did. In, in fact, it is one of the items in my trivia troll. Hey! So, a nice segue. Would you guys like to hear some trivia about The Shining? Yes, please. Okay, all of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. Although, just before we get in, I feel like this would be one film that, of all the films you've looked at uh, on this podcast, where you probably could go to other sources hmm. and there would be uh, uh, quite a treasure trove because I feel like everyone talks about hmm. the trivia like the whole 157 takes for for yeah. one minuscule bit hmm. Hmm. Yeah. there was there was a lot to, to sift through even just yeah. on IMDB yeah um, I'm so, not surprised yeah this is this is a it's a lengthy section but yeah. it's also a very cut down section <laughs> um, Stanley Kubrick who of course as we've discussed is known for his uh, compulsiveness and numerous retakes got the difficult shot of blood pouring from the elevator in three takes. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been remarkable were it not for the fact that the shot took nine days to set up each time. Oh. Every time the doors opened and the blood poured out, Kubrick would say, it doesn't look like blood. So in the end, it took the shot about a year to get right. 
Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because they had to play around with the blood um, and, and make it look bloody. Because I suppose that much... Because it's not, it's not a model. Like, that much yeah. liquid is, is going to be, obviously, water-based. And water and blood move differently. Mm. Uh, and not that I've seen a massive amount of blood in that, <laughs> in that quantity. But I don't imagine that it would slosh the way water does. No. Um, so no, yeah. Not, not I, with its viscosity. Yeah. But it's like, I guess, try and imagine get watered down custard, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. And then trying to get it to slosh. And then get it the right colour. Yeah. And then get those elements to match up. And then like, because I love the way it splashes up in front of the lens. Yeah. Like, and they've used that for the transition, yeah. I think, beautifully. But but you can't control that. And like you can't control the way that the chairs are going to move, the way they start sliding around with all that mm. blood water present. It feels like there's a lot of beautiful moments like that in this film. Like yeah. the ending film, the ending part where Wendy's driving away. Mm. And then and the, the mist, mist like yeah. perfectly just then steps in. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how much of that was controlled, that kind of... Given that it's Kubrick, I'm going to say all of it. I'm just <laughs> going to say he, he would have insisted yeah. On, yeah. on having people wafting mist at the right time, mm. uh, would be my guess. Or maybe, I mean, that could have been something that would be fairly easily... Because it's on black, you could fairly easily um, Photoshop, for want of a better word, yeah, like do a post. You could, you could oh, yeah. add it in, potentially. Yeah. Even yeah. back then. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, because Danny Lloyd was so young and it was his first acting job and basically his only acting job uh, mm. because he grew up and became a teacher, um, Kubrick was highly protective of the child. Um, during the shooting of the movie, Lloyd was under the impression that the film he was making was a drama and not a horror. Uh, in fact, when Wendy carries Danny away while shouting at Jack in the Colorado lounge after she thinks that he's strangled him, that's actually a life-size dummy. Oh. Because he didn't want danny present for any of those elements wow um danny was only um told the truth several years later when he was shown a heavily edited version of the film Mm. he did not see an uncut version of the film until he was 17 so yeah he Mm. uh, (laughs) yeah i I just think that's really great him just going like i've got an imaginary friend he does this i see some creepy girls but i'm sure it's fine (laughs) it's just the drama i was in it's the shining what? Um, the idea for Danny Lloyd to move his finger when talking as Tony was his own idea. He did it during mm. his first audition and they were like, we're keeping you and we're keeping that. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. And it's a great distinctive. Yeah, just... it's... And also the yeah. scene where, where he's like, he's talking to Tony and then he closes his fist and he's like, Tony, I need, I... what are you saying, Tony? Nothing. Mm. And it's like, oh, Oh, interesting. Yeah, future, future Danny's not on the line right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hung up. Yeah. Um, according to Shelley Duvall, the infamous Here's Johnny scene took mm. three days to film and the use of 60 doors. Wow. Yeah, I've heard that this is because Jack Nicholson used to volunteer as a firefighter. That's cool. And he would get through doors too quickly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. Um, the props department had originally built a door that could be easily broken, but because of Jack Nicholson being, as you say, a volunteer fire marshal, he just tore that thing down too easily. So they then had to get proper doors in for him to actually hack apart. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Jack Nicholson could actually break through your bathroom door and get to you, which is just terrifying to know. <laughs> but also good because he, if he's doing, at least with his experience, he's doing it to save your life. Hopefully. Nice. Yeah. 
Hopefully. Do we know, is that, was that line improvised? The Hello Johnny? Here's Johnny is not, um, is not in the book. And it would have been, yeah, it was improvised. Mm. Um, it wasn't in the script. And also, uh, because Kubrick was, was based in England, he had no idea of the importance of the Here's Johnny line and right. was going to cut it. And other Americans working on it were like, no, no, you should keep it. Like, it's, it's, it's good. What is it a reference to? Is uh, it the Johnny, Johnny Carson, Carson show. show. Because ah. uh, when, when Ed O'Sullivan would introduce him, he'd be like, on tonight's show, we've got um, Ed Asner, the Beatles, and here's Johnny. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what That's... would be the Australian equivalent of that? Uh, like some sort of Darren Carl. Hitch. <laughs> yeah. Here's Carl Stefanovic. Yeah, but do they get introduced in this way? Maybe like, maybe Grant Denyer would. Grant Denyer. But does anyone go like, here's Grant Denyer? <laughs> we should now. Yeah. Here's Pluck-a-Duck. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> Fred Simons used to get introduced like that, I think. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think it's a very American thing. Yeah. And now it's I'm a just, very specific time. Now I'm just trying to think of specific what decade. an Australian version of The Shining would look like. Because instead of it being snowy, I it'd imagine... be out in the out, it'd be out like out yeah. past Alice Springs. Yeah, kind somewhere. Of deal. In, well, in, I, in a way, in a way, that's what Wolf Creek is, from what I know I of the film. Yeah, but just just this like just like sheep shearing shed <laughs> that that Jack Nicholson's wandering around. Uh, it's just and it's just too hot. The heat's getting to him. Yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah potentially. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see that. Uh, to get Jack Nicholson in the right agitated mood, he was fed only cheese sandwiches for two weeks. <laughs> uh, he hates cheese sandwiches. <laughs> so he was, he was actually hangry, I think, is probably part of it. He, was, uh, he had food was that? I feel like, was that the director's decision? Oh, un- undoubtedly. He'd be like, hey, he hates these things. Let's... <laughs> this is like, this is why method acting mm. irritates me so much. Yeah. Because it is so freaking dangerous. Mm. And it's just cruel. Yeah. And I'm like, you hire these people, these highly trained people yeah. to do their job. Why don't you just let them freaking do it? I think if you're an actor who wants to engage in method acting and that practice really only affects you, yeah. I would say that's fine. If you yeah. really want to do that, And if that's your choice, go and do it. But like, it's, it's when it's not your When it's decision. enforced on you, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I, I suppose it's the, there has to be a difference between like setting a mood or helping mm. people get into that. I think it... I think when it starts to actually affect their quality of life, yeah. I think that's when you have to go. And their well-being. Let's let's calm our farms for a moment. Yeah. This is this is a bit much. Um, There's a famous quote with Olivier. Mm. Olivier was working with Dustin Hoffman, mm. and Dustin Hoffman was getting into character and like having a you know hurt his leg or like run around, and Olivier was like, "Why don't you just try acting, darling?" Mm. <laughs> you know, it's that thing of old school versus new school of. Um, mm. A method acting. Mm. Yeah, it's just. Um, Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall have expressed open resentment against the reception of this film, feeling that critics and audiences credited Kubrick for too much of the success, without considering the efforts of the actors' crew or the strength of Stephen King's material. Mm. Uh, Nicholson and Duvall have said that the film was one of the hardest to work on in their careers. In fact, Nicholson considers Duvall's performance the most difficult he's ever seen an actress take on. Uh, mm. du- Duval has also been on record saying, yep, yeah, that was the hardest thing I ever did. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think it does show. But and I, mm. Yeah, and I think it being difficult is probably, from the sounds of it, down to Kubrick. Mm. Does he edit his own films? He was pretty heavily involved, yeah. Yeah. 
Because I think that's the editing is one thing that I think was like the standout element of this film. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think otherwise, yeah, their performances were good and the script was good, but without that editing to bring it all in together, I think it, yeah, it would have been, would not have been as great a film as it is. There's an amazing edit on YouTube where someone has put together a version, a trailer version, which is like, the Shining. Oh, yeah, and it's mm. like a family film. It's like Jack Torrance was a writer who just wanted to go away with his family. And they use all the yeah. footage that's in the film and they mm. just put it together with happier music. And it yeah. absolutely works. And I think the music is is so important in this mm. film as well. Huge. Uh, particularly, it's absent for large sections. And then when it's there, it it's so present mm. that you yeah. almost can't take in anything else that's happening. It's so overpowering. And I think it worked, but at points I was like, okay, this is starting to sound like my smoke alarm needs a new battery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, early on I found it a bit too present. Mm. Um, But yeah, as it, and there was a couple of moments where I'm like, the music really heightened and you know those zoom in moments like when, um, oh, what's his name? Scatman's characters, Mm. like Wendy finds Scatman's character on the floor and the music heightens and then this really quick zoom in to Scatman and I'm like was that was okay do one or the other don't do both it feels a bit on the nose yeah. <laughs> Kubrick famously uh, was on the nose for a lot of his things though and I, th- and I feel like maybe there's a few things from this film which because this film did it and it was so well received people have sort of done again and again mm. like like the fact that the hotel was built on an Indian burial ground <laughs> yeah uh, it's just like we all, you groaned. You're like, oh, no. And um, yeah, the fact is, is that, yeah, the, the trope of like yeah. colonizers building stuff on uh, Native American uh, sites of importance being like the underlying cause that the spirits are not happy, mm-hmm. um, I think is certainly something that has been played out. But I'm wondering if whether or not The Shining is like the big shining example of that that everyone then mimicked yeah. afterwards. Um, the throwing around of the tennis ball inside the hotel was Jack Nicholson's idea. The script originally just specified that Jack is not working. Huh. He came up with the thing. And I really like the way that that sound of the ball hitting oh. the wall. Yeah. And then you pan out and realise, oh no, that's not a soundtrack. That's the character throwing it at that pace. That's Jack mm. Nicholson just belting this tennis ball against the wall. And the subconscious of it, it sounds like a hammer or something. It sounds quite deep. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it's really hitting that wall. It's like... Mm-hmm. You know, subconsciously going, the, it's the hotel pushing against Jack's conscious, yeah. conscience. Mm. Um, Stanley Kubrick originally wanted Slim Pickens to play the part of Halloran. Apparently, Dick Halloran had to be played by an actor with a real life funny name. Uh, so instead of Scatman Crothers, he That's wanted Slim, Slim Pickens. Uh, but Pickens uh, wanted nothing to do with Kubrick following his experiences working with him on Doctor Strangelove. Huh. Uh, and of course, he'd also been in the best film of all time since then in 1974's Blazing Saddles. So he he knew he's, he was just not going to... We will do Blazing Saddles one day and I look so forward to it. I just googled Slim Pickings. Slim Pickings was an American rodeo performer hmm. and film and television actor. I'm like, that is, that is great. Yeah. That is great. And yeah, yeah. I, I'll say again, go watch Blazing Saddles. He's one of the best things in it as the, uh, the sort of deputy... To uh, Headley, Headley, just the guy, just the real southern drawl, just like well, shit, like that's basically how he talks, and it like 
we could have had like a cowboy. <laughs> Danny, do you want some ice cream? Yeah, they call it the Shining. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> he'd be in that that room in Miami with like the posters of the naked women on the on the on the wall watching Miami local news. That could have been no, me. and the poster would be um, framed by two like prancing stallion statue oh, things yeah, yeah he, 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 his home would have been in texas i yeah. think had, had that been the case <laughs> yeah. just down on the ranch uh scatman crothers was suggested for this film by jack nicholson um and crothers ended up having a pretty tough time on this film because like all the other actors um mm. kubrick kind of broke him a bit yeah right. um kubrick reportedly uh made him do one uh, particular scene uh about a hundred times. Jesus. Crothers' next film was Bronco Billy, which was directed by Clint Eastwood, also released in 1980. Uh, and Eastwood is quite famous for generally only using one take. Mm. Um, Crothers apparently broke down in tears of gratitude during his first scene when he realised he wouldn't be having to do endless takes again oh. and again. <laughs> I think yeah. if I ever got put on a Stanley Kubrick film, mm. I'd probably be, end up being in jail by the end of it because I would have killed him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's it's... You know, it's a great film. It gets results, mm. but it is again, like like we say, it's kind of at the cost of the well-being of a lot of the yeah. actors and crew. Yeah, and I think that comes from. I'd be interested to find out like more about Stanley Kubrick as a person. Like, was there just no one to tell him, "Hey, mate, maybe you just need to calm your farm mm. uh, and leave it there." Like, actually take into account other people. Uh, and yeah. yeah, but Katrina, he was a genius in quotation marks. Like that—that's yeah. the thing is, he, he at this point he's made two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, mm. which is arguably like the most impactful yeah. bit of filmmaking, let alone like science fiction filmmaking. When, film. whenever, really, I've tried it three times, yeah. okay. three separate occasions, probably mm. like five or ten years apart, and I yeah. get. A third of the way in, I'm like, I'm completely disinterested. Yeah. I'm just, I can't engage with it. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that's really fascinating because we, we did it as one of the first films on this program. Mm. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, right. But I also have not gone back and watched it since. Mm. I've not been like, oh, Saturday night, nothing to do. Gonna watch <laughs> Space Odyssey. Yeah. Because it is laborious in, in areas. Yeah. But... Um, you know, you look at the other things he made, like Clockwork Orange. and Or what we watched amazing. earlier this year, Spartacus. Mm, yes, of course. We made mm. Spartacus. We watched Spartacus. Yeah, that was my first. My first. Uh, I think that was my first Kubrick. Kubrick. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. People forget that because it doesn't feel like a Kubrick film. No, because it's very early Kubrick. And it was quite oh. formative in him going. I want to make films my way. I think he made mm. it quite the way the studio wanted it mm. made at that time. Um, and I think that sort of made him go, "I'm going to make films my way." Um, mm. From there, and his way involved. Um, Scatman Crothers crying in, in Clint Eastwood going thank you for only making me do one take <laughs> but I can appreciate that he was just about like I, I need this to be perfect I need this to be high mm-hmm. and I need it to be brilliant I, 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 I'm on the fence about it because it's like I understand that yes while the well-being of the actors were mm. on the line he gets does get good results yeah i for me i just frequently whenever i hear about the insane things that people do to get a work of art done right i go "Mm, i'd be more interested to see if you could 
not kill yourself or other people, yeah. metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, and would you still be able to create that? And I, in my experience, yeah, you can. Yeah. And I find people's people's process, if it's really finicky and really frustrating, I'm like, I just kind of want to go to them. Like, who hurt you? Yeah. Do we, do, maybe you need to go work on yourself for a bit so you don't have to hurt everyone else. Mm. Has Kubrick done a comedy? Well, Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, Doctor Strangelove. Oh, uh, yeah. It was, strictly speaking, a comedy. So was mm. that the same sort of thing where they would have done like a thousand takes? Well, Peter mm. Sellers was in that, wasn't he? He was. He was. One of the main, and he was quite famous for wanting, constantly wanting to rework on his things. Wasn't yeah, he? He, was, he was a bit of a perfectionist. Those two got along great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great. But yeah, no, he, he, he occasionally did, you know, delve into things like that. And, you know, there are, I think Kubrick, because he's, he's been dead about 20 years at this point. Um, I think Kubrick is somebody who, from, from like a, a perspective of reputation, died at the right time. Or like yeah. his career finished at the right time. He's not, you look at other contemporaries of his who are still alive and are either working or just retired but their work because they're alive they are part of a conversation more actively about these sorts of things about how we treat people in film Mm. um, and also just about how we treat people in general you know the fact is is that some of Kubrick's contemporaries are some of the most notoriously awful people in, who potentially in should be in jail yeah, for, some, Ra- for various Polanski, things? Absolutely. Mm. Um, Woody Allen is another, mm. um, yeah. and they are you know they are both people whose films, when you either watch or discuss them mm. these days, you have to put a big old um, asterisk next to the film or next to the name and go, "Hey, this film's here, but it's Woody Allen." It's kind of a similar thing with um, we did Seven a few weeks ago on the podcast, yeah. and Kevin Spacey is a big part of that film, right. and we had to go. You know, this film is great. It's got Brad Pitt, but Kevin Spacey. Uh, yeah. And I feel as though Kubrick, K- Kubrick, as far as we're aware, never committed any horrible crimes of, of the nature of... Of the sexual nature. Of, of, of the yeah. sexual nature. But I think he was definitely someone who thrived... Well, would have been manipulative. Thrived yeah. on the manipulation of others around him. And in, in a way, directing is manipulation. Yeah. Right. And I think that's that's maybe something that people... Some some people will look at that and go, great. So this gives me justification mm. to control people the way yeah. Kubrick did. And for others, I feel as though there is a more sort of gentler guiding hand principle. Mm. But it's yeah, I, th- I think essentially with something being so amorphous as the the sort of creative industry that is film, mm. where there are so many approaches and so many different ways to yeah. get results. Um, I think it's interesting that we have these, I suppose, ongoing discussions about what works and what doesn't. Mm. I don't think Kubrick operating the way that he did 40 years ago would fly today. No. Or at the very least, it may still happen, but you would hear stuff about you, it. Yeah, you'll you hear... hear I mean, you're starting yeah. to hear it about people like Joss Whedon. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, he's the only example I can think of off the right off the bat. Yeah, or uh, um, Uma Thurman's discussions about Quentin Tarantino yeah. and Kill Bill, mm. about how he made her work in conditions that she realises now were very unsafe. Drive the car, just drive yeah. the car, you'll be fine. Yeah. And had a detrimental effect on her, her yeah, life. Yeah, she, she got hospitalised from that, didn't yeah. she? She's still recovering, I think, or at least still gets issues from yeah. that accident. And so I think it's, yeah, 
I think it's really interesting to keep that in mm. mind, even with someone like Kubrick, who yeah. never, as some would put it, went too far. Others would go, no, he did go too far. He just, just not didn't... in a sexual sense. Well, also he didn't break anyone. Like, yeah. Like Shelley Duvall didn't die from overexhaustion, or yeah. you know Jack Nicholson didn't quit films because this experience was so awful. Yeah. I think it's yeah. I think it's a really interesting thing to to sort of have in mind, and particularly think... when the films are still really good. Yeah. Like mm. undeniably, what whatever happened to make the film worked because the film is is excellent. I. And I think just to put my final take on it mm-hmm. is that I want to know, did Kubrick in terms of uh, behind the camera and set design, costume, all that kind of stuff, did he work with the same kind of people? Because whenever I hear someone going, oh, they're a genius, whether it's in art, science, whatever, I'm like, okay, who's helping them? Mm. Not to take away from their individual skill and talent, but saying that, Genius never happens in isolation. Genius is always supported. Um, whether it's just through that person had a partner who took care of the kids, made sure they, they ate on time, made sure they had a roof over their head and clean clothes on their back. Mm. Or whether it's that he always worked with the same set designer and cinematographer who knew how he worked and knew how to get results. Mm. Um, I think in some ways genius happens not because of one person, but in spite of one person. Kubrick took... I I know this from watching a documentary about his life some years ago. Mm. Kubrick was very involved in the look and design of his films. Yeah. He, when he died, his family, who are still quite involved in, like, his estate and talking about him and things like that, um, they have his photograph collection... Mm. And his photograph collection is extensive. He would just go out to locations like streets in London Mm. or like houses or graveyards or wherever and just take thousands of photographs, Mm. different framings, different times of day, different types of light to try and capture a particular look and would reference those looks in his films. Mm. Um, Almost obsessive compulsive. Yeah, he was, which again, I think is maybe partly why he did so many takes because it had to be just right because Mm. he would make the image look just right and you can do that with i think that's why there's so many lovely shots without actors in them in this film yeah in terms of like those big empty sweeping shots that final shot where it zooms in on the photo with jack nicholson in 1921 yeah um i think that's that's like almost the perfect kubrick shot because there's no actors in it but uh, yeah like i still imagine that would have taken a long time to put together um to construct the interiors of the overlook hotel kubrick and the production designer roy walker purposefully set out to make it look like an amalgamation of bits and pieces of real hotels than mm. having one aesthetic. Um, Kubrick had sent photographers around the country photographing hotel rooms and then picked out his favourite. For example, the red men's bathroom was modelled on a men's bathroom at the Biltmore Hotel in Arizona, um, which was designed by Frank Lloyd, and the Colorado Lounge was mm. modelled on the lounge of the Awani Hotel in uh, the Yosemite Valley. Um, the chandeliers, windows and fireplace were nearly identical, so much so that when people stay at that hotel, they ask, is it the Shining Hotel? Mm. But it's not. They just took elements from it. Wow. Yeah, yeah it was quite the... I really liked the design. Hmm. Um, just the colours. That's why it kind of made me think it'd be interesting to put it as a double feature with Grand Budapest. Because 
Who's Grand Budapest again? Who who did it? Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. That's it. He he is very colourful in a lot of his films, mm. and particularly from the bits of pieces that I've seen of Grand Budapest, um, just the strikingness of the of the colours and the patterns, and yeah, and again the symmetry is very breathtaking and interesting. Mm. Um, just a couple of final trivia points before we conclude. Uh, Stephen King, who we've not talked about much no. in this one. Uh, obviously wrote the original novel, he was quite disappointed with the final film. Um, While admitting that Kubrick's visuals were stunning, he Mm. said that it was surface and not substance. He often describes the film as a fancy car without an engine. Wow. Mm. I quite like that it lets the audience do a lot of the work. Mm. You know, you have that scene between Jack and Danny where Danny comes in and Jack's just kind of staring out the window and Danny sits on his lap and Mm. they're talking about... And, you know, he says, like, you would never hurt, you know, me and mummy, would you? But then, like, that music's going on underneath Mm. and we know that it's menacing, Mm. we know it's suggestive. I like that the audience kind of has to do the work on that. I guess we also see that a bit in that moment of when Wendy starts seeing the... um, the supernatural elements. Yeah. I guess that's what he's kind of talking about because as you were explaining to us, Stephen, that's a whole backstory. Yeah. So, whole like references to backstories yeah. that we don't get a look in. Yeah, like the shot of um, the man in the costume having yeah. sex with another man who's in like the 1920s gear. Mm. It That's alluding to something that's a bigger part of the book. Yeah. And maybe it's it, so obscure. And maybe if you were the author of the book and then you saw somebody take essentially like 40% of your book and turn that into the film whilst turn understanding it in, turn it into two seconds of the film yeah, yeah. like if you you can look at it and go uh i mean if i'd wanted it that way i'd have written the book like that i guess mm. and so i think it's very rare to find an author that is completely satisfied with how their work has been adapted to another oh. medium stephen king and patrick morgan i think it's patrick no alan moore can go cry into their hundred dollar gins or yeah. scotches or whatever they drink together <laughs> mm. um but i think it's interesting and maybe like i haven't read i don't i haven't read any stephen king novels um in a sense maybe all that backstory what it does is pull focus from the family and focus then on the history of the of the hotel and the fact that it's influenced people through generations of decades and then in cinema it feels like we we kind of get that through yeah. the vibe and the atmosphere you mm. know so it's almost i can see the reasoning of being like mm. well we don't necessarily need to explore that backstory mm. well i think it's probably just down to kubrick or whoever decided he's like no i just want to focus on the family focus on the on the real people yeah. and have the supernatural as uh just something to push the um, push the storyline along. Mm. Uh, some final bits. Mm. The 1921 photograph at the end of the film is a genuine photo from the 1920s. It looks like it. Wow. With Jack Nicholson's head airbrushed onto the body of another man. Huh. Mm. For the scenes when Jack can be heard typing, but what he is typing is off screen, Stanley Kubrick recorded the sound of a typist actually typing the words, all work and no yes, play makes Jack right, a dull boy. Yes, that's right, because he's argued <laughs> that each sound, the sound of each letter has a slightly different sound. Yeah, and the the Which pages is, and pages of uh, the notes that say, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, uh, Kubrick's uh, secretary wrote that, and it took her about two months. 
Like that is all <sighs> actually written. Oh, yeah. And I just think that being Stanley Kubrick's secretary might make you murderous just in general. <laughs> um, and I think he was really testing that. Uh, the scene towards the end of the film when Wendy is running up the stairway carrying a knife was shot 35 times. So she ran the equivalent of the staircase at the Empire State Building. Oh, jeez. <laughs> So it's no wonder that she was pretty pooped by the end of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and with a knife as well. Like, you don't see that often. No. Um, and finally, I just wanted to have a look at this film in other languages. Uh, specifically the sentence, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Obviously that's a well-known English idiom. Mm. Uh, it was not necessarily used in all different translations. Oh. Uh, for the Italian version of the film, Kubrick used the phrase, and Kubrick picked what the phrases were for different languages, uh, used the phrase... Il mattino ha loro in bocca, which means he who wakes up early meets a golden day. Um, for the German version, it was Was du hut kannst besorgen, das Wischbericht nicht auf morgen. Apologies for any German listeners, because I definitely mangled that. Which says, never put off till tomorrow what you could do today. Ooh. For the Spanish mm. version, it was No por mucho madruga amenes mas temporano, which is rising early will not make it dawn sooner. And for the French version, it was une tens vaut mieux que deux tuloises. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Oh. Mm. I wonder how that would change the impression of the film. Mm. Do any of those strike you as being um, better than all work and no play? Like, for me, I really like the rising early doesn't make the dawn sooner. Yeah, that, mm. that seems to fit quite well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was one there, I can't remember what it said exactly, but it was more suggestive, it felt more suggestive of like, you're going to kill your family. Oh, never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Mm, that one. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's the Germans for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the key thing, though, is that I think we had the right one for the Simpsons to make their joke from all work and no beer makes Homer something something. Go crazy. Don't mind if I do. I have two pieces of trivia. Please throw um, them over. Which just, I love, you know, movie tri- trivia and um, we'll just, it will pop up in my Instagram and. Um, one is that uh, apparently there's three shots of the maze in the film and mm-hmm. every time the maze is different. Mm. Oh. It's not the same design. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did which, not notice that. Yeah. I was like, I was watching for it in the film and going, okay, that's very subtle. Very cool. Mm. And uh, I mean, look, this could be completely coincidental, but apparently the last shot of Jack in 1921, mm. his pose apparently is very similar to one that is drawn in, of the devil. Oh. Yeah, of like Mustafalis. Oh. oh, that's... Um, in that pose of like one hand up and one down. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm. That was pretty cool. Well, thank you for some bonus trivia. Oh, that's yeah. lovely. Uh, okay, guys. That almost brings us to the end of this review. All that remains is for us to score the film. And Katrina, you get to go first because it was your first time watching The Shining. What score are you going to give it out of 10? Um, it was a beautiful film. And I think as we've sat and spoken about it, and I've had time to reflect on it. I'm like, I actually did really like it and did quite connect with it. Um, yeah, I would... Now, I think the score that I give, I think it would be higher if I could watch this at a cinema mm-hmm. and, you know, really um, get my teeth into it. Um, so with that all, taking that all into account, mm. I think I'll give it seven and a half... People that live in my mouth. Oh, no, no. Let's not go around. <laughs> Let, no, what about, uh, no. Cute, cute NASA jumpers. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Seven and a half cute NASA jumpers that I really want someone to make for me yeah. out of ten. They were incredibly great jumpers. Yeah. Um, yeah, Danny's fashion was on point. All right, Brent, what about you? What scores is this film getting out of ten? Uh, I would have to give it... You know, if, if I had seen... If I was alive in the 70s uh, without all of the kind of last... What fifty years of film? Mm. I'd give it very like nine or a ten. Mm. I think it's such a beautiful film, and I think that if it was live in the seventies, I'd be more used to this pacing of film. Mm. But I, I remember trying to revisit this film like a few weeks ago, and uh, it being quite difficult of like sticking with it. It's the same for me. It was like with two thousand one mm. Space Odyssey. I'm like, come on, pick it up. Mm. Um, so, but I would still, I'd give it an eight today. Mm. I'd give it eight mm. um, naked old ladies in the bath <laughs> that's just what you want eight eight of them with, all with giggling like, <laughs> and skin falling off yeah and... i mean that all that prosthetics or whatever was on yeah. her were very effective good. and like that's i think the most unsettling thing to me now on reflection was the shot of her in the bath in the water and then her getting up out of the bath mm. from looking over i was like Ooh. oh one thing yeah. that actually that i think they they kind of missed. It was then when the young woman was coming out of the bath, I was expecting to like her to have more limbs in a sense. Mm. Like I was expecting her to almost unfold herself and mm. be like some sort of almost spider woman person. Right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some other horror film has primed me for that. Possibly. <laughs> I mean, that would have also been awful yeah. uh, if, yeah. they, if they could have managed that. Uh, for me, I, I think this is a really well-made film mm. uh, i really appreciate it it's got the voice of hong kong fooey in it um, which is always going to help uh with scatman brothers um but but it, it is a little long um and i think those sequences where jack is at the bar with um the man who made the androids from blade runner um <laughs> when he's he, when he's in there with lloyd i like them I almost wish they'd come in a bit sooner, though. No. Um, I, I get that it's part of his like descent into the madness of the hotel and all this sort of stuff, but um, that was the first point in the film where I found myself looking at the time, um, I think. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to keep track of that in films when I go, oh, okay, what time are we at? And like, why is this scene making me do this? Or is it just where it is? Is it just I'm a bit gassy? Like, I don't know what's going on. What's happening? How's this going? So, yeah, I think it could definitely be be a bit tighter but then if it was tighter would the tension be able to build as much that's the Mm. thing it's it's a really fine balancing act what i do know is that when i watched this as a 15 year old i found it very captivating uh from i was you know getting into film study at that time at high school so like i watched it and was like oh my god you can do this with film um i'm watching it now i still find it very captivating um so i will give it eight and a half um fabric ties that everyone had in that first scene but it looked like they were made out of like <laughs> toweling or or like dressing yeah. gowns okay, eight and a half fabric ties out of ten yeah it was, nice. yeah yeah they were weird ties and they were one of the most discomforting things <laughs> in the, in the whole, just really tied it to this was shot in the late 70s yeah um guys that brings us to the end of our review of the shining so all mm. i have to say is brent and katrina thank you so much for joining me on this episode thank, thank you steven and for did you say that like twins for a reason i think we did yeah <laughs> come join us steven play with us forever and, and ever and can ever. i let the people at home know about uh, where they can find this fabulous podcast first 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, if you want to get episodes of this each and every week, because some people just find this by random happenstance, and they're like, oh, what? Yeah, I'll listen to this. Hey, thank you for, for taking a chance on us. If you want to hear more of these, we review lots of films. Uh, at least um, 184 that came before this, I believe. Oh, um, wow. If you want to go and listen to those reviews, uh, we can be found at the Cinema Catch-Up Club on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere you can subscribe to podcasts, we'll be there. Uh, we can also be found on Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page, which is where we uh, put up uh, polls, where you guys get to help us decide certain films that we review uh, in votes. If you want to vote, you know, be a part of that. You know, there's an election coming up in America, and if that gives you, if that gives you the taste for voting on things, uh, then go to our Facebook page. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there. And, of course, we have our Patreon, where um, people who give us a little bit of money, grease that wheel, get a little bit more stuff spinning off that wheel for them. Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash podcast to read up more on what's available there. And uh, consider being a, being a member. I'm not telling you you have to. I'm just saying. It's there. It's an option. We can make this happen. <laughs> it's cheaper than a cheese sandwich a week. It is cheaper than a cheese sandwich a week. So, Jack Nicholson, please, you should join up specifically. <laughs> you got it, Stephen. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> um, but yes, that is all for this week. So, until next time, goodbye. 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 You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.